Last time, we considered the wise men, remember the Magi, who were pagan astrologers, we saw, and they came looking for the prophesied and appointed, divinely appointed king of the Jews. Um, And we saw that Herod, as the Roman appointed king of the Jews, was not happy to hear that there were Gentiles from Babylon looking for some divinely appointed king of the Jews. And so if there was some kind of coup surrounding some baby in Bethlehem, Herod was going to be the one to put it to a quick end. So what he did, we saw that he sent the wise men ahead of him as sort of unsuspecting spies to locate the child and return and tell him where this, this child was born. And he did this under the pretense that he would go and worship the child as well. But we know that he was going to uh, seek to execute that child and destroy any kind of um, rebel messianic movement that might have been brewing in Bethlehem. So today we're going to find out what happens when the wise men don't return with any news about about the Christ. And they kind of ignore Herod's command. So that is what we're considering today, starting in chapter 2, verse 13, if you would read with me. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I have called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that had been ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted. Because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose, and he took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophet might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. One of um, our family's favorite movies is Lord of the Rings, but also The Hobbit. We, we love that Hobbit series. And uh, one of my favorite... John, you like that movie? 
Oh, is that just a baby crying? Okay. <laughs> um, one of our favorite scenes in, in The Hobbit is when, if you remember, they're in Bilbo's house. The dwarves are in Bilbo's house. And they're, they're around the, ki- the, the fireplace and they start to sing the Misty Mountains. That's such a good, I, I wish, maybe we should try that in worship, but like change the lyrics <laughs> to. It's, it's, but one of the reasons I love that is because this is, it's this song of longing. The dwarves are longing for their home. They're longing for the, the gold they lost and the home they lost under the misty mountains when the dragon came and took it over and, and, and exiled, if you will, all of the, the dwarves from the mountain. The dwarves remembered the height of their kingdom. They remembered what it, would, what it was like to be a people under the reign of a king dwarf under the mountain. Uh, before the dragon came and stole it. And so that song, The Misty Mountain, if you don't know it, look it up, is a song about longing to have restored what they lost by the enemy. Every time I hear that, I think of the Jewish people longing to be restored to a time where they were truly a people under God in Jerusalem without being controlled by a foreign power. That is, that is exactly what they were at this time. The Jewish people were a people of longing. They knew the old stories. They knew, um, they knew the stories about how God had delivered them from Egypt with a mighty arm. How he had sent plagues on Pharaoh. How he had caused them to cross through the Red Sea. How he made Israel wander in the wilderness for 40 years, testing them, them to see what was in their heart, bringing them into the promised land, raising up a Joshua, destroying the evil nations from the promised land, and establishing Israel as God's people in God's land. They remember those stories, but now, at this point in history, for hundreds of years, hundreds of years, they have been a people under the rule of a foreign power. Remember, it was Babylon first who were controlling the people of Israel. Then it was Persia. Then it was the Greeks under Alexander the Great. And now it's the Romans. And under the Roman rule, they had a puppet king who was not God's king. They, um, they made the, the priesthood a political entity instead of a holy entity. And so the Jewish nation was not really a nation under God at this point. It was a nation under Rome who had kind of co-opted the kingship and the priesthood to serve Rome's interests and keep the Jewish people under their thumb. And so the Jewish people were a people longing to be delivered. And the key word in this passage is fulfillment. Uh, Matthew shows how the expectations and the promises of God have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so if we're going to grasp this passage 
And if really, if we're going to understand Jesus and his significance, we need to understand him in the Bible's own terms and in terms of Israel's hopes and their expectations as they come to fruition in Christ. So chapters 1 through 4 of Matthew answer one question, one big question. It's who is Jesus? And it answers that question in Jewish Old Testament terms. Chapters 5 through 7 is, what does Jesus command from you? And we will get there. But right now, let's consider in terms that the Old Testament kind of sets for us, let's consider who Jesus is through the hopes and expectations of Israel. There are three prophetic events, three fulfillments in this passage, and each event in Christ's life in this passage fulfills a long-awaited promise of God. The first event is Christ's flight from, or to and from Egypt. We see that the angel, uh, after the wise men had departed, they did not tell Herod that where... Uh, they did not go back to Herod. But the angel appeared to Joseph in a dream and says, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. Because Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Um, remember who Herod is and what he's like. He was a paranoid and protective king. Um... He killed many of his... He, anyone who was a threat to his throne, he put to death. So many of his associates he put to death. Uh, we know that he killed at least two of his sons. And he also killed his wife. Because they were seen as a threat to his throne. In fact, he had a standing order that the day of his death, whenever that was that he had a group of Jewish leaders that he had assigned to be killed so that there would be mourning on the day of his death. That's how, and no one would mourn Herod's death, but people would mourn the death of other people. So he ordered the execution of others on the day of his death. This is the kind, he was not a well man. <laughs> he, was, he was paranoid, murderous and protective of his throne. So the angel tells him, tells Joseph precisely where to take Christ. He says, take the child and flee to Egypt. So he gives him specific directions. And this, we are told, fulfills the prophecy of Hosea 11.1. 1. This was to fulfill, verse 15, what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt I had called my son. Now, in, in context, that prophecy in Hosea um, is about God reflecting on his love for Israel, even when Israel has been rebellious. You can read that in verses 1 through 2 especially. Matthew, what is very interesting, what does... What does Matthew want you to believe? What does the scripture want us to believe about 
this prophecy in verse 15. This happened to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I call my son. It is very interesting that Matthew takes a passage which applied originally to national Israel and reappropriates it and applies it to Jesus Christ as the son who came from out of Egypt. He is the son. And so this begins a central point for understanding the Gospels. Namely, that Jesus is inheriting the identity and mission of Israel and his birth, life, death, resurrection. He is inheriting the identity and the mission and fulfilling the hopes of Israel. And so you, you can think about it as the history of Israel being replayed in the life of Jesus as he adopts their identity and mission. So what he wants to do is take an unfaithful history and fill it up with faithfulness. This is Christ's mission in the Gospels. And so you can think about Christ embodying Israel, replaying the history of Israel and his life, adopting their vocation, and then fulfilling their mission. We will see this concretely as we move on through Matthew, but... First of all, like Israel, he comes out of Egypt, just like in the Exodus. In Matthew chapter 4, he will then sp spend 40 days in the wilderness to parallel the 40 years that Israel spent in the wilderness. After he does that, he will choose 12 disciples that parallels the 12 tribes of Israel. And then he will ascend a mountain and talk about God's law, just like Moses did. Only he does so with authority. And he will say things like, you heard it said, but I say to you. So he is not only assuming and inheriting the identity of Israel, he is filling it up with the fullness of God. So that's what Jesus is up to um, in his life, his death, and his resurrection. Um, so what we need to believe is that Christ is the true Israel. Notice in chapter John 15, he didn't say, I am the vine. He says, I am the true vine. And you are the branches. So in other words, if Israel was the vine that did not bear fruit in Isaiah chapter 5, Jesus is the true vine who unites men and women to himself and produces fruit through them. And apart from him, we can do nothing. So Jesus is becoming Israel. Um, he is assuming their identity, adopting their mission, becoming their sacrifice and their resurrection so that the nation of Israel cocooned the promises of God until the time of fulfillment came in Jesus Christ. That's the first prophetic event we see. Second prophetic event involves Herod's murder of children in Bethlehem. Um, we're told that Herod, when he saw 
that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. He sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. And all in that region who were two years old and under. There were, uh, the estimates are about 300 to 1,000 people who lived in Bethlehem during that time. So 300 to 1,000. And so um, scholars believe that the male children under two years old was somewhere around 12 to 24. So this was not necessarily a mass slaughter of hundreds and hundreds of infants, but maybe a few dozen infants. And that's why we don't read it in, in another history book because this was a relatively small event compared to the kinds of antics that Herod carried out in his life. But imagine the horror. I mean, imagine the horror of being a father of one of these two-year-old infants and 12 Roman soldiers burst into your door with orders to slaughter your son. And you can do nothing. I cannot imagine the helplessness and the pain that both the mother and the father would feel. And so this is why Matthew says, this was spoken to fulfill what the prophet Jeremiah said. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Rachel, if you remember, was the wife of um, Jacob. And she was the one who said to Jacob, give me children or I die. So she was the one who was associated with a desire and a love for children. And in Jeremiah, this is a quote from Jeremiah 31, chapter 15. What Jeremiah is doing is he's writing during the time of exile. And he takes Rachel's weeping and he talks about the exile almost as if it touched Rachel in the grave. The exile is when the Jewish people were taken, killed and taken captive to Babylon. And that, that was a, a, another dreadful period in Israel's history. It was much like the Holocaust, actually. There was, um, what they would do is they would take the Jewish people, put, strip them down to the waist, um, tie them up with ropes, and take them to way stations to be kind of sorted out and sent off to different places. Rama, which is quoted here, Rama in verse 18, was sort of a way station where they would take the Jewish people before they would cart them off to Babylon or wherever they were going to place them. And that's why Jeremiah talks about weeping in Ramah. This is where mothers were separated from their children. This is where fathers were separated from their wives and taken off to Babylon. And 
there was great weeping then. And so Matthew is taking this prophecy, which originally was talking about the weeping of the exile and applying it to this event, the slaughter of the infants in Bethlehem, which is the same in the same region as Ramah, and saying this happened in fulfillment of that. So this is another event in Christ's life that replays the history of Israel. Herod's, Herod's killing of infants parallels the slaughter or the slaughter and the enslavement of children, mothers, and daughters during the exile. Listen, throughout redemptive history, Satan has come to steal, kill, and destroy God's people. He is always and will always be against Christ and his people. And he will do everything he can to utterly demoralize and destroy them. And he did that with Christ, and he certainly, it certainly is attempting to do that with you. Now, in Bible study, we were talking about a few days ago how he does this in subtle ways. I heard, I've, I've heard other people say, and I think we talked about this in Bible study, when Satan wanted to lead, steal, kill, and destroy from Eve, he didn't hit her over the head. He gave her a thought. That is exactly the way he works through you and me today. Through thoughts. Through feelings. By allowing you to feel the pressure of external circumstances and it utterly demoralizing you so that you don't have, you have no hope. And so that your belief in Christ is causally effete and hopeless. Satan doesn't want to destroy you only. He wants to demoralize you. He wants to destroy any brightness in your soul. And he is working through Herod even in this passage. And even in, during this time, he was working through Herod to get that done in Israel and among God's people. So, that's the, the second prophetic event in this passage. The third is Christ's return to Israel and specifically to Nazareth. We read in verse chapter 2, verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, this is to Joseph in a dream, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, that this is kind of perplexing, that he would be called a Nazarene, because that, that is nowhere in the Old Testament prophets. There's no prophecy that says that the Messiah would be called a Nazarene. So what does, 
Matthew mean by this? First, notice that Matthew does not say, this happened in order to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. He says, this happened to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets, as a plural. In this fulfillment passage, unlike the other passages. So it shows you that Matthew is, isn't is sp- thinking about a specific prophecy, but about a theme among the prophets. So what is that theme? Nazareth was a place with a very bad reputation. It was kind of a ghetto. And um, it was low class, it was impoverished, it would be like the city of Newburgh here. It, It was just not an area you want to be in. Certainly not a place where the king of the Jews would expect it to be raised. You can see in um, John chapter 1, verse 45 and 46, we read that when Philip found Nathanael and said to him, "We we have found him whom Moses and the law also prophesied, also in the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So, You see here, even in John, we see this kind of assumption about Nazareth being a low-class, impoverished place, not a place you expect a king to be raised. So, this shows that Matthew is not talking about one prophecy, but a theme among the prophets. That it would be foretold that the Christ would be despised and rejected. So Jesus was not only raised in a despised and rejected place, but he himself would be despised and rejected. And that seems to be what Matthew has in mind when he says he will be called a Nazarene. He will be called somebody who goes by a despised and rejected location and name. Now, it's not only Jesus who was despised and rejected. (coughs) It's his disciples who were despised and rejected. Right throughout the Gospels, we see the disciples of Christ being chastened, persecuted, and despised for their faith in Christ. Um, so it's not just Jesus himself who is going to be despised by the watching world and his people but it's actually his disciples as well. So, brother and sister, if you are persecuted or mocked or scorned or laughed at for your faith in Christ or belittled, it's not because you're doing something wrong. This is precisely what we should expect as Christ's disciples. Jesus himself, in Matthew 10, said, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher, and the servant to be like his master. If they had called the master of the house Beelzebul, that is the devil, how much more will they malign those of his household? So you see, Jesus is telling his disciples to expect 
to be called to be called evil not just laughed at but to be called evil now if they've called Christ the devil how much more will they call you the devil and so our views on Christ-centered values whether it is on abortion homosexuality it's not just we will be and it's not just that we are belittled we are we are called evil and wicked for having those views right to say that marriage is between a man and a woman not a man and a man and that abortion is murder it's no one just says oh we're going to let bygones be bygones they say you are wicked and evil and you are you are everything that's wrong about society expect that expect that as Christ's disciples if they've called him the devil they'll call you the devil as well but let your heart be encouraged because that means that you're in a very blessed situation if you're persecuted for the name of Christ And you know, they, they killed Christ. They killed the apostles. And in, the, in Revelation chapter 17, there's a, there is a scene with a prostitute drunk with the blood of the saints. This is the imagery we get about the world's hatred for Christians following Christ. And so to this day, Christians have been persecuted and in this country, we see the traditional Christian values waning. And that's good in a sense because it's kind of bringing to the surface who are the true disciples of Christ and who were just socially disciples of Christ. But we do see social Christianity waning. And so what, what are we to expect as God's people? Where is history going? I mean, Herod slaughtering people to get to Christ, the Jews killing the Messiah, the disciples all being jailed or killed throughout history, God's people being killed, and here we are. 20 people sitting in a room in a nation that is slowly but surely deconstructing its views of reality and its its moral order. So what should we expect from history? I think there is one, after those three prophetic events, there's one prophetic phrase in this passage I want to encourage you with and has encouraged me. And that's what the angel says to Joseph. In verse 20, he says, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. Why? Because those who sought the child's life are dead. That's, a, that's the phrase that the Christian's heart should take courage with. That is the exact thing 
You can look this up. That is the exact phrase that the Lord spoke to Moses when he goes from Midian back to Egypt. He says, those who are seeking your life are dead. And that is the exact phrase that the angel or that the angel says to Joseph. And that is the precise reality that comes to fruition at the end of Revelation. When the king of kings comes with a sword in his mouth and destroys his enemies. And it, it, all, it is almost hard to read as the birds of the air feast on the flesh of his enemies. There's a violence there. So I, I want to, not that, not that we want to see people destroyed. We want them to come to Christ. But if they don't, if they don't repent, they will be slaughtered with the sword that comes from the mouth of the sun. And we need to not be apologetic about that. Now, I don't think we should be brazen. I don't think we should be proud or pompous about it. But I think Christians for far too long have been, have been afraid lest they, lest they come off as culturally insensitive. Have, have an attitude of victory as God's people. Christ does not just win heaven, he wins history. And he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. What does, what does the Apostle Paul say to the Romans? He says, he says, the God of all peace, I love this, the God of all peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So history is going to, has its up and ups and downs. And as far as the times and the seasons and tribulations and millenniums, that's a, that's a complex discussion, I know. But let's look at the ultimate hope. Let's look at the ultimate end for how history comes about. Christ wins. He destroys his enemies. And the saints are glorified with the Son. This is why you can have the fruit of the Spirit. Love and joy. You know what joy is? It is a sense of well-being, even in spite of circumstances. Even in spite of circumstances. You know that Christ Jesus wins. And if you are united to Him you are united to that victory. And there is a heaven to hope for and a history of eternity that waits for us as we worship the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So in, in our church, I would that we have an attitude of victory. Yes, I want to I understand the times and the seasons, and I know that it seems like this time, in this season, in the church's life, in this country, we will have to strengthen what remains and is about to perish. And maybe there will be few Christians in the, in the next generation. But do, do not be demoralized. We have a triumphant and victorious history in which to hope. So, 
I leave you with this during Christmas time. Don't, don't just be sentimental about Christmas. Be victorious in your attitude and the way we talk to our children. And even the way we evangelize with confidence. Speak with confidence about your Christ. He, he is king of the Jews. And even though the dragon continually tries to destroy him, he will reign. John says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the life shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The darkness will not overcome. The Christ has shown in the darkness. And during this Christmas season, let us remember that it is God breaking into human history, destroying the works of the devil, and he will reign. Let's close in a word of prayer.